0: Well, you might say that certainly most right-thinking American businessmen would be appropriately horrified at the idea of a confiscatory communist regime coming in and putting their ilk out of business. On the other hand, there were those who saw a potential opportunity in this. Very often, if you look at historical events, you'll find that the actual facts are so few or so basic or so vague that it's basically possible to build any kind of story around them. Often where conspiracy theorists go awry isn't theorizing that conspiracies exist, they most certainly do, but often giving them too much credit for being too well-organized and having these things in control. Maybe the most influential factor in history is the law of unintended consequences.
1: Hello everyone, that was the voice of today's guest. History Professor Richard Spence Professor Spence is the author of Wall Street and the Russian Revolution. I invited him on to help me sift through the realities and fantasies of the different claims made for the United States backing the Bolsheviks. As you heard in the clips, Professor Spence also discusses how the ambiguities of history can give rise to a proliferation of interpretations and what conspiracy theorists tend to get right and wrong. I start out by asking how you went into this particular area of research.
0: Well, I always get this question as to how I got interested in the various, you know, unseemly things that I'm interested in. How did you get interested in the stuff that you're interested in? And um, the usual answer I give to that is that, well, you know, one thing leads to another. You're interested in subject A and subject A leads you to subject B and C and so on. And so basically by sort of general academic training, I am a modern Russian and Eastern European historian. Thats that's where my interest lies. So you know the, the Russian Revolution is kind of smack dab in the middle of that. So it's uh, it would be I- impossible to avoid. but in terms of, um, you know, and in terms of modern Russian history, you're, you're certainly inter- interested in things like, well, politics, that's a huge part of it, diplomacy and economics. Those are usually the, the big three and often in that, that kind of order. So interest in the Russian Revolution uh, then led me to an interest. Well, well, here's a, I can give you a specific example. The first book I wrote, which I had actually wanted to be my dissertation, but my advisors thought that it was, well, just too obscure of a subject, was on a little-known Russian revolutionary figure, uh, quite a name in his day, but largely forgotten since, by the name of Boris Savinkov. And so my first book was Boris Savinkov, Renegade on the Left, and it was basically an effort, uh, you know, I'd say looking at it again after some years, I have a pretty decent one, of trying to take Savinkov out of the obscurity that he'd fallen into, and at least at reassessing or looking at his role in the, the revolutionary movement, you know, both before 1917, during and after, up until the early 1920s. So one of the things I ran across in the case of Savinkov was, one, a fairly significant figure who had, for all practical purposes, just been edited out of virtually any kind of commentary about the revolution. It was as if he was never there and yet he was there and he did play a personal role in decision making. Uh, you know, he, he made decisions which uh, affected uh, events around him. Um, and, and to give an example of that, Savinkov was uh, a fairly high, he was like the number two military figure in the Russian provisional government, which was that sort of brief sort of quasi-socialist dominated regime between the fall of the Tsar and the advent of the Bolsheviks. The government actually that the Bolsheviks overthrew, not the Tsar. And Savinkov was uh, a kind of political intriguer, vice minister for war, uh, influential among the Cossacks and others. And when the, when the Bolshevik coup d'etat is underway, in October 1917 or November by the current calendar. And there are marshaling forces to take over the Winter Palace. Um, one of the things that Savinkov gets a call from is from the fellow who was the head of the of the Cossack garrison near the Winter Palace. The one group of sort of actual experienced military troops who might have been able to hold the building or at least forestall the the, the seizure of the Winter Palace and they basically wake him up and and, and ask him, what do we do? Do we resist or do we not? Uh, And he basically told them to sort of do nothing and they went back to bed. (laughs) Okay. And now, it, it's not to say that had Boris Savinkov given orders to the Cossacks at the Winter Palace to resist that they would have done. It. You don't even know whether they would have followed those orders. But the one thing he did by his action was to basically ensure that they would do nothing. So um, so I, I found it interesting that Savinkov, and, and the reasons that he was, let's say, written out of history for the most part, or only given a very... Uh, minor mention every now and then when you couldn't possibly avoid him was that he was one of those people who bit every hand that fed him. He was not a trustworthy man. Uh, he was extremely ambitious. Um, uh, a Kind of, you know, one of those people who's always involved in some sort of plot and maybe in ultimately not very good at plotting. And so he managed to offend everyone and thus uh, sort of disappeared from the historical narrative. And that's another thing that I would bring up. I mentioned that the historical narrative, the, the, you know, history is, after all, a story. You know, Napoleon said it basically that it was a set of lies agreed upon, which, you know, is essentially true. Now, that's a weird thing to hear from a professional historian, but it's all pretty on, on sort of shaky ground because what history. The sort of accumulated knowledge of the human past that we have is, is really based upon two things. It's based upon a relatively small number of facts, and those facts, remember, are things that are you know uh, undeniably true. So we could say that, yes, you know, there, there certainly was, well, was there a Russian revolution? Well, we could say, yeah, there, there was. There were actually sort of two in 1970. But yes, there was this whole revolutionary process. We, we can't deny that that happened. But then when you get into questions as to why it happened or how it happened or who played this role or what was more influential here, well, then you get out of the realm of facts and you get into the realm of opinion or into narrative creation. So you've got these sort of, you know, this relatively small set of facts and, and what historians and, and others do is that we build, we do the same thing with everything else. We, we come up with a story to explain these things. And that story can be you know, it can be true and that it's very close to what happened. It can be completely false. It can be it's, it's something which is made up, which bears no relation to what actually happened, even if the facts can conform to it. And uh, but usually what you get is some mixture of the two. And it's, you know, a, a narrative about the Russian Revolution that doesn't really include the role of Boris Savinkov, among a lot of others, isn't a, a isn't a complete narrative. It's a, it's a narrative which leaves certain characters out because they become inconvenient. So that was the first thing I discovered about Savinkov in investigating him. Um, the other thing I came across was something that I would paid no particular attention to was that he was a Freemason, and a lot of the other political figures that he came in contact with were members of that fraternity. And I don't want to get into this whole thing about, you know, this this isn't because, you know, Freemasonry is the work of the devil as evil as anything else. They're all plotting to take over the world. No, no, nothing of that kind. I don't think they could manage to do that. But what it does create is a, well, it it, it is a secret society. It is an it is a connecting influence among people that often transcends politics. Uh, it's, It's something that joins people together in a not very obvious way that can have important influences on their actions. It is an association of particular people, people who have become, who have sort of volunteered to become part of this association. So look, anytime you find out that everybody involved in something all belong to the same club, that's not Accidental. It may simply be an artifact of other things, but it's not just one of those things. It is a consequence of other things around it. And I found out that that relationship, his role as a Freemason, did influence how Sevenkopf dealt with people. So at one point, uh, again, uh, during the sort of uh, events of 1917, when he's a position in authority, he's approached by... One of the Romanov Grand Dukes, and I'm going to think it's Alexander Mihailovich, but I won't swear to that, but it's, it's one of the imperial family, and they're basically trapped. Uh, they're sort of semi-prisoners in this town, and the Grand Duke comes to Savankov and he asks him, he sort of admits that, look, we, we have really nothing politically in common, uh, but I'm asking you as a brother Freemason to assist me and my family in getting out of this town. And Savikov does. He puts politics aside and he assists his fraternal brother in escaping the predicament he was in. So there are lots of things that that went on with this fellow. Uh, So once you begin to look at things like secret societies, then you begin to notice that they're sort of everywhere, (laughs) that all kinds of people belong to them. And then you begin to look at other kinds of associations. And I say... That then drew me into an interest as to how uh, people associated with occult organizations and the occult itself, people like Aleister Crowley, become connected with uh, with clandestine affairs and intelligence. It was one of those things that first seemed, uh, you know, it seemed unlikely. And then the more I look at it, the more you look at it, the more you can see how these how it actually fits together amazingly well. So one thing sort of led, led to another. And it's in the process of that, if you could take my interest in Russian history, the Russian revolution, people like Savinkov, uh, that, that's all, I also came into um, contact with another figure is sort of, who has sort of haunted me. Okay, the, the, the one sort of figure that in some ways I wish I'd never come across just because he's so, yeah, mysterious is, is uh, the guy known as Sidney Riley. We may get into more about him. So Sav- Savinkoff, by the way, was a, a colleague, a, a co-conspirator with Riley. Their, their careers intersect. So it was Savinkoff that led me to Riley. And then it was Riley who kind of led me to so much of the rest of these things. Because Riley is, um, you know, he's not James Bond. He's, he's an international crook. <laughs> he's, he's essentially a con man. And maybe we can explain more about that. Also a a businessman, this is one of the things that people often overlook about him. That's uh, all of his involvement in clandestine or espionage affairs are all under the cover of business. He's always running some, some kind of business. So Savinkoff takes me to Riley. Riley takes me to a whole legion of other people whose careers and activities intersect in mysterious ways And then I guess it comes into, you know, what what maybe is the real answer as to why these things interest me is that I love a mystery, all right? I like puzzles. I don't like things that are too obvious. I I kind of like, you know, people to be difficult, too. I mean, one of the things that uh, my wife noted is that if you're dealing with Riley, even to some degree, Savinkoff, you know, (laughs) most of the the people that I tend to investigate are uh, pretty much pathological liars, that is, they they just lie. They, they make up all sorts of things about themselves, and in many ways, their their lives are this you know carefully created or not so carefully created fiction, and that's that's kind of a fascinating thing in, in, in a way. How do you how do you actually piece together the biography of someone who you know is an inveterate liar? And well, you have to do it very, very carefully. Um, and you also have to accept that in some cases that there probably will be parts that you'll never really know. I mean, you're you're left with this evidence that again you're gonna have to weave into some kind of narrative, you're gonna have to make some kind of biographical narrative about this. And a lot of ways you you know, you you have to admit that you can never be entirely certain about some of it. Uh so that's yeah. So that's how I basically got into this. So there we go.
1: So I'm just gonna bring up my notes and to jump in on this point you made about mystery. And I have to say, that the the reason I got in contact with you, Press Spence, is because the Russian Revolution, I like a mystery, but the Russian Revolution is a mystery that's beaten me. Okay, so one of the things, okay, um, I I put to you in the email was this contrast of narratives we have about it. So I quite like the anti-imperialist writer, William Bloom. He's kind of left of center. And he starts off his book talking about America, the United States, the CIA's anti-communist crusade, saying that really Russia was the template for this. And American troops went in intending to strangle at its birth the Bolshevik state. And they were so alarmed and offended by it because, one, because they withdrew Russia from the war, but more than this, because the Bolsheviks had the audacity to overthrow a capitalist system, a feudal system, and proclaim a socialist state. This is totally totally unacceptable to the American business class. And um, the, the the Pentagon saw this as an honorable dealing to help people struggling for liberty. And the, the barons of American capital, you write, had no reason for the war against communism other than the threat to their wealth and privilege. Um, Oh, so that's that's one narrative, okay? And I mm-hmm. think that's not an uncommon narrative, okay? Maybe the moral indignation, maybe the left of sentiment as William Blum brings to it is, is maybe not pervasive. But then if I pick up Anthony Sutton's work, I learn that... Um, Actually, the Bolsheviks could not have come to power without support from the United States and Britain, and he acknowledges this is exactly what the history books tell you didn't happen um, that they, the Americans were occupying the trans-Siberian railway to keep the Japanese out, but that's all nonsense. They were there to let the Bolsheviks in and um, in this apparently, the Bolsheviks uh, were quoted in the New York Times thanking American troops in in 1919 for this service and um Sutton is emphatic. we went in to help the Bolsheviks. There's no question about that. So, what we have is two completely contrasting completely views. Did, now, yes. how do I begin to reconcile that? That people are looking at this event and seeing the complete opposite thing.
0: Well, if you're looking at the event and you get two different stories, two different narratives that are mutually you know, exclusive—they can't both be true. But again, the thing is, they can—they can both sort of. They can weave the known facts into it or a selection of facts. They can also sort of leave things out. But it's, I mean, very often, if you look at historical events, you'll find that the actual facts are so few or so basic or so vague that it's basically possible to build any kind of story around them. Now, there's a lot of things going on in the Russian Revolution. They're, they're, this is a case of where you don't lack for information. In many ways, you're, you're kind of overwhelmed by it because you have all of these different factional disputes. And so the first thing I come up with is that it's, um, in, in, in both Sutton's and I think in Blunt's work, the, the idea is that um, essentially all of the vast majority of American capitalists are behaving and thinking exactly the same way. They're an undifferentiated mass, in the same way that we talk about things like the American government, the French government, the British government, uh, as if this is a a kind of collective, and it's, it's an institution, but within that, what you have is factionalism. Okay, human beings are divided into cliques and factions, and therefore the U.S. government, the British government, at any given time, is never composed of simply of one faction. Or you can think of them as power groups. It can be everything from fairly large groups of people united around some particular point or common cause. Uh, it can be a particularly ambitious individual and their followers, but there's always factions. There are always differences of opinion. At no point in time, it would be extremely difficult to find any government at any point in time where everybody involved in decision-making within that government all agreed on everything. They might have to go along with something, but they wouldn't necessarily agree with it. And this is, um, it's one of those principles, I can't remember where it is, it's one of those little observations that the fellow I was talking about before, the mysterious Sidney Riley, of course, as we'll see, wasn't even really Sidney Raleigh, uh, came up with is that when you're talking about governments, you're just talking about a selection of individuals. And if you can sway or eliminate certain individuals, you can change the policy of a government. That is, if you change the balance of power between the individuals and factions that are part of it. And if you think about it, in some ways, that's really a key to sort of modern politics in many ways you know you just have to alter the balance of power within this system in order to manipulate it or to control it so there's always there was a difference of opinion and I think in both cases it's an oversimplification of something which was a very fluid and in many ways kind of kind of chaotic system and I think this is another thing that um, you know, it gets gets into the room, you know, clearly, a lot of the things that I'm interested in sort of seem to uh, inevitably involve that very tricky area that is usually called disparagingly conspiracy theory. And this is, of course, generally connected to the idea that there are conspiracies, that there are deliberate plots of some kind that are behind most things, and, you know, really, I'd argue that, yeah, that's absolutely true. Human beings conspire by nature, and they conspire about everything all the time. It is just the way people operate. But the other thing is that most conspiracies aren't terribly well put together and don't really work. And it's, uh, the, the thing that often drives it isn't the idea that 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 any sort of any kind of particular plot or scheme or stratagem. So those are all sort of the same thing. All of them are, are attempts to try to sway events, but uh, they almost never work out the way people assume that they would. And and part of that is, I think a big part of it is what I've always loved this. I always tried to get this across in history courses and by saying that the most, maybe the most in, single most influential factor in history is the law of unintended consequences, and that means that when you set out to change one thing, when you try to alter a variable, you know, when, for instance, let's say you overthrow a government or assassinate someone or back this faction as opposed to another one, well, you have an end result that you want in doing that, but... What one cannot fully anticipate or what is very, rarely done is that when you tinker with one variable, when you change one thing, you change a whole variety of other things. And therefore, you never quite get the outcome that you wanted. The law of unintended consequences arises from that action, which sort of screws with your whole wonderful conspiracy, which was supposed to make this work. So there were um, you know it, it, I came to, to Sutton's book because he was addressing questions that had sort of arisen in my mind and and one of the things I'll say about his his book, uh, particularly his wall Street and the and the Bolshevik Revolution, and then his other ones Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler and I think Roosevelt and the rise of excuse me Wall Street and the Rise of uh, FDR um, in all of those, he really began to... I think, look at a variety of sort of real plots or schemes that were underway that didn't necessarily attain their goals. But he was talking about a phenomenon that was essentially real. But I think he had, I think the limitations of his work written in the 1970s is that, He had relatively little information to go on uh, and therefore he was inclined to accept whatever sort of came his way. And again, particularly to accept those things that conformed to the narrative that he was building. And I'll I'll give you an example of that. He mentions um, at some point in, in, in Wall Street, in the Bolshevik Revolution, about Leon Trotsky being in America in early 1917, which he was. There he was. And under under very I've written a couple of I wrote about that in uh, in the book, uh, my book, Wall Street of the Russian Revolution. Uh, and I've also written a couple of independent articles about that. It goes into in some detail. And yeah, it's like conspiracy and go-go with Trotsky in, from all different directions in, in New York in early 1917. But one of the things that that Sutton mentions and and takes at face value is uh, a statement that appears in a book uh, which states that when Trotsky left the United States, uh, he left with an American passport. Furthermore, this passport had been sort of personally provided or ordered to be given to him by none other than President Woodrow Wilson. Now that's a very interesting statement and I wanted to know, is that true? And I began first. Of all, I looked up the source of the information itself, which I won't go into all of it. But you'll know, just you know it it, it derive is simply a statement without any kind of source or notation from it uh, in a book by someone who I cannot see by any stretch of the imagination would know. They they that just seems to be and in many ways it's, it's an, an assumption on their part that doesn't have any basis in reality, but uh, it's an interesting, it's one, another one is um, that that Trotsky, when he was in New York, earned money as a film extra, you know, that he, that he actually had a part in a film in which he played, guess what, a Russian revolutionary, (laughs) and now that's a story, by the way, that I absolutely loved, and I would like nothing more for that to be true. I was really rooting for that one because that would have that would have been sort of the coolest thing ever. But uh, then again, it just it it does sometimes. You begin to look, and if you begin to look closely, I and mean, if you look at the name of the film, he supposedly played a part in that film was made before he ever showed up. He couldn't have been in the film. Uh, there was you know, it's nothing. So it, it was, again, it's it's a statement that someone makes later that shows up in a newspaper that someone else repeats. Uh, that, again, is a huge thing in history. One person says it, somebody else repeats it, someone else repeats it, and you repeat it enough, it then becomes perceived wisdom. Uh, when, in really, it was just someone God. making it.
1: Can I interject here with a, yes. a specific question on Sutton and some observations I've made, and you yeah. can tell me whether I think I'm in the right ballpark or not. So just first to say, what, what I'd like to go on to do, I've got notes from your work about John Stevens and what was going on in Vladivostok and so on, which I'd like to contrast Sutton's position with with your own. Um, mm-hmm. but. The reason I think it's important to talk about and understand Anthony Sutton is whilst he's probably not been as influential as he should be in in the world and in history in general, he is massively influential in alternative media and what we call call conspiracy media. And I don't mean Mm. that as a pejorative. I just mean people who take a slightly more conspiratorial view on reality. And a lot of people uh, who are certainly consuming that, and maybe people even producing it, probably haven't read Sutton uh, in any great depth, maybe. But... They listen to podcasts on him and they go around casually accepting this idea that the United States was all behind uh, bringing the Bolsheviks in and that then slots, it doesn't end there, that slots into a certain reasoning for that. It's all to do with Cecil Rose's plan to reunite the Anglo-American establishment and bring about this one-world government that's socialist in nature, and it it, it fits in sort of somewhat uncritically into that worldview, I think, and Sutton himself, um, I listened to a talk he gave in 1987 Okay, and I just made some notes of some of the things that he said, which I think portray a certain worldview that I I would think of it as like a John Birch Society worldview. Okay, now, it my, my, my not, might my not be nuanced enough um, there. I might be getting something a bit wrong. But he says things like um, he believes that the USSR at the time was using weather modification weapons to... Mess with the U.S. space program, um, and they were they were the reason that the Challenger shuttle exploded. Um, and he believes um, he believes that the withdrawal from Afghanistan, this is nineteen eighty seven, is a complete fake. The Russians aren't going to really withdraw. He thinks that Russia is going to grow to be this great world power and have a war with the United States sometime in the two thousands. Um, and he thinks that the the United States is supporting or brought to power the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. Now, I. I I think I know what he's referring to there. But to say that in 1987, when Ronald Reagan is clearly backing the Contras all the way, it, it seems to be that Sutton has a particular worldview. Um, and and also, uh, he's a big fan of Richard Pearl, um, that the, became more famous as a neocon in, in uh, connection to the Iraq war, because Richard Pearl is very anti-Soviet. And I know it's been speculated that the John Birch Society uh, occasionally was either fed or picked up upon CIA anti-communist propaganda and republished it, like with um, the the getting rid of, um, uh, what's his name in uh, in Chile, and bringing in Augusto Pinochet in. Allende, yeah. Yeah, Allende, yeah. Um, the, and I think that's the kind I find the John Burt Society kind of interesting, and it gets me to think of a different perspective, but I do think sometimes they were republishing CIA anti-communist propaganda. And I do wonder if, two questions really. One, Sutton is interpreting the very accurate and novel things he's seeing about us involvement from a certain paradigm that's coloring his view and whether he was ever maybe being fed certain information by figures like pearl or someone beneath that to to do with building up this kind of anti-communist anti-russian position in the united states
0: well we've been talking about narratives and the creation of narratives and the other term that goes along with that is to control the narrative Uh, And and one of the things that, well, one of the things the good old CIA and any sort of intelligence security agency is interested in doing is influencing and, if possible, controlling the narrative about certain things. Um, CIA was never shy from its inception uh, and right through today of cultivating contacts in the media. Uh, This was what you needed to have, you know, one of the things you wanted to have friends, it could give you good PR, uh, you could say good things about you, or could, you know, could spike stories that were against you. This was the manipulation of, of information was, is always been part of this, part of this game. So it comes into the question, could let's say, well, let's just say the CIA, we don't have to, it doesn't always have to be them, but let's say, could someone in the CIA have decided that, um, that the John Birch Society... Now, the John Birch Society was generally seen as a, you know, one of these things which is called a far-right organization. I always love these terms because that somehow implies there's a near-right organization or that there's, there's a right organization. Anyway, anyway what, do, what do you mean when you use the term far-right is you're attempting to discredit it because far means, you know, out of the mainstream, something, something which is unacceptable. And so the John Birch Society... Uh, you know, I, I think they were, you know, the more mainstream American conservatives would sometimes agree with them, put up with them, but they always they always just thought that they were, you know, off on some tangent in, in many ways. And in some ways they were. Here's an interesting thing that I was reminded of. Um, I think i had noted it one time, but forgotten it, is that during the 1960s, during, during the era of the Vietnam War, uh, the John Birch Society was quite adamantly opposed to the U.S. involvement in Vietnam. Uh, they opposed American escalation in Vietnam. Now, it wasn't because they wanted to, you know, they were wanted the, the uh, Viet Cong to win or wanted a communist Southeast Asia, but they believed that communism was a much greater threat domestically, that, com- that communism should be fought at home as opposed to focusing our attention on fighting it in Southeast Asia. So they they thought it was a distraction. It was something that was drawing the national attention and energy away where the real threat of communism, you know, was in our schools uh, and in in society as a whole. But the the John Birch Society was, I think, even by most mainstream conservatives, seen as slightly, well, wacko, you know, a little bit out there. Their views were extreme. And um, nevertheless, they appealed to a certain constituency because there was a market for those so called extreme views. It wasn't just, you know, 12 people somewhere who believed in that. Uh, it could influence hundreds of thousands of people. So Even if you've got, let's say, a group that you don't necessarily agree with or approve of, the point is you recognize the fact that they have influences in certain quarters, and thus it might be useful to try to steer them in a particular, to use them as a vehicle for certain information you wanted to get across. Particularly if that information otherwise might sound a little, you know, far right. (laughs) So maybe you wanted to put something out there And you would have something like uh, the Birchers who would, you know, eagerly glom onto that and, and advertise it in the same way. You've got a researcher like, uh, like, like Anthony Sutton, um, you know, and Sutton was a, I I think the thing that probably had the greatest influence on him was his work as a researcher for the Hoover Institution, uh, which is a, a, private research uh, historical institution housed in Stanford University, and it's, of course, all the work of Herbert Hoover, uh, American politician, um, president, and and, and Russophile. So the Hoover Institution is a huge repository of information um, about the about the revolutionary era and anything connected with that uh, because Hoover decided that it was going to be, it was going to be the repository and everything was going to be contained there, essentially in private hands is a kind of interesting thing to note. He was very interested in, in maintaining control of information about the revolution as a way arguably of being ultimately able to shape the whole public narrative about that. And so the, Hoover Institution would sponsor publications and uh, bring in particular authors, make information available to them to kind of write the history that in some ways you could argue they wanted. And that's the the, uh, the sort of milieu that uh, Sutton found himself in. And given access, if he was, at, you know, given access to the records he found there, that's where he first began to notice that the standard historical narrative didn't seem to fit and you know, basically what he's what he came across was something that anybody you look for could come across was that there were people well you might say that certainly most let's say right-thinking american businessmen or businessmen anywhere would be appropriately horrified at the idea of a confiscatory communist regime coming in and and putting their ilk out of business. On the other hand, uh, there were those who saw a potential opportunity in this, and also in some ways were even sympathetic to his overall goals. So all you have to do is to really go back and look at the newspapers of the time, look at what appeared in the American press in 1917, 1918, the years following that. And there you'll find people like to give the two important examples, Raymond Robbins. Uh, and you'll also find William Boyce Thompson. Uh, those were two uh, certainly William Boyce Thompson was a major figure on Wall Street. Um, you've also got Charles uh, Crane uh, who also thought that he was somehow God's gift to to, to Russian affairs who was had a deep personal interest in it uh, and 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 these were men who were very influential in American business they were major figures in what we would call the Wall Street nexus and yet to one degree another they were not opposed to the idea uh, of of a revolution in Russia the overthrow of the czarist regime and then it just depended how far they wanted to go with it so Charles Crane definitely wanted to get rid of Tsar Nikki and was willing to lend whatever assistance he could for that to happen but he didn't Necessarily, want things to go as far as Lenin and company. Where on the other hand, William Boyce Thompson and Raymond Robbins thought that uh, you know Lenin and Trotsky were just fine. You know that these this this was really the whole sort of wave of the future. This was you know they were sort of Christ. Uh, <laughs> this was sort of like the second coming in some ways. And 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 they're not shy about saying this. You can find I've in in uh, my book. Um, you know, in in Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, uh, I can give you chapter and verse of the newspaper articles where William Boyce Thompson basically hails the Bolsheviks as true authentic Democrats and they kind of, you know, real sort of grassroots American tradition and that they were going to usher in a new age. And at the same time, he's also very eager to do business with them. So there again, one always has to look at this and argue how much of what voice how much of the pro-bolshevik statements from someone like uh thompson were really designed really based upon true ideological convictions on his part or simply a means of using ideological rhetoric to justify his ideas that he can make a lot of money off of dealing business with these guys and then you have another figure who did was Very important in sort of who did both you know business with the Reds from the beginning, and that's Henry Ford. Now, Henry Ford had no particular interest, certainly, Henry Ford was no commie. Mm. (laughs) I don't think he can be accused of that. There are many things he can be accused of, but you cannot turn Henry Ford into a communist or pro communist. Uh, what he was was a businessman, pure and simple in that regard. And the point was, is that there were trucks and tractors to be sold to Russia. And regardless of what sort of government was in power, so long as he got paid for that or got a license agreement, then he was perfectly happy. That, that was simply was practical business to him. The other thing that I think influences this is that the, the Soviet regime that's created, the Bolshevik regime, let's call it that, was, stick to that term, that comes in late 1917, was something really new. I mean, it it was the first avowedly socialist regime on Earth. Okay, nothing, never before. I mean... There had been peaceful and less peaceful and violent socialist movements. There have been you know, evolutionary and revolutionary socialist movements in, in European world affairs since the middle of the 19th century. So it wasn't exactly new. There had been you know, the first international, the second international. We're working our way up into the Bolsheviks to the third international. It was, a lar- it was indeed a large, millions and millions strong international movement represented by many different parties. And remember, one of the things that the Bolsheviks would seek to do, one of the things that their brand of communism would sought to do, was to bring all of this under their control. Uh, that anyone interested in social revolution would therefore have to accept communist leadership in order in in, in order to achieve this kind of uh, this kind of you know, world socialist republic. But there never there hadn't been you know socialists really had power anywhere at least on a national level. So no one really knew what they would do, I mean, People talk about all kinds of things, but are they really going to do that? So, and I, and I would seen there were, um, you know, there were American businessmen in Russia who, when, you know, when early, you know, after the Bolsheviks come to power, the question was, well, you know, they, they talk like they're gonna nationalize everything, but remember, they didn't do that immediately. That was a kind of gradual mm-hmm. process. Banks were nationalized, but, but businesses, foreign properties are nationalized over over a period of time, and there were those who would argue that no, this is you know this this is never going to happen because it's just too impractical. They can't do that. You know they're not going to abolish money because you know, hell, who can do that and live? And yet, as these things unfolded, you know the the narrative changed as well. But part of it is that you didn't know exactly what they were going to do. Their policies were not entirely clear. And another example of that is the uh, the Bolshevik declaration beginning, that they were going to seek peace with Germany. And uh, that becomes another sort of big issue which is going on because there's still a world war underway. Uh, and the United States, Britain, France, Italy, some other countries, are all at that point still very much involved in that war, which is, you know, not really going all that well <laughs> at that point, uh, particularly with Russia uh, leaving it. And so uh, there was this, there was whole feeling sort of betrayal by Russia, and that were you know, were the Bolsheviks, were the Bolsheviks actually going to make peace with the Kaiser? And again, you can look at people like William Boyce Thompson, who would go to the press and go, No, this will never happen. I know these guys, you know, they're 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 not going to make a separate peace. Well, they do, he's he's dead wrong. But that was a thing that was in itself was something which was debated within. The Bolshevik camp. There was no absolute unanimity among the Bolsheviks. You know, Lenin had basically decided that yes, we were going to we're going to make peace, and we're ultimately going to make peace on any terms we can get. But that wasn't a view that was shared by Trotsky. It wasn't a view that was shared by Stalin. It's not a very important guy at that point, but he didn't share that. It wasn't a view probably shared by most other in the Bolshevik hierarchy. And a lot of it just had to do with Lenin's force of personality being able to push that through. But if you actually look at the, you know, the votes that are taken um, uh, within, you know, the decisions to whether or not to accept the the Brest-Litovsk Treaty that the that the Germans put forward, which was a difficult pill to swallow. Again, uh, Trotsky would simply, you know, he would refuse to vote for it. He wouldn't put his name. Wouldn't eventually put his foot down about it but he would not support it so it wasn't clear (laughs) and that sort of raised these questions in some people's minds let's say goes back to what we were talking about before how you can change the path of a government simply by changing one or two people in it so if you began to look at things if you were if you were paying attention to how power seemed to be flowing in the Bolshevik camp, you would notice that this guy Lenin seemed to be the one who was calling all the shots, Uh, that he clearly dominated most of the other figures, Uh, but you might also notice that that Trotsky seemed to be also quite popular and outspoken, influential, visibly ambitious, but also uh, clearly opposed to a separate peace with the Germans. He'd always made his opposition to a separate peace uh, fairly clear, uh, and also much more amenable to cooperation with uh, agents of allied governments. So you still have and the, the you know Trotsky talking in the spring of 1918 about the possibility at some point of maybe resuming the war against Germany, and so you might get the idea, or you could see how someone would get the idea that you know. If somehow this Lenin guy could just be, you know, pushed aside one way or the other, then we might be able to deal with a more practical person like Trotsky. Could have been others as well, but you kind of see that that, that Lenin was a sort of a dominating, hardline figure, and if he could be eliminated, and that of course raises the interesting question because if he could be, who would have taken his place? I mean, good, better, and different. He was a, he was the most influential person, and that if in some way historically you removed his influence at a critical period, then things could have happened very differently. So it's again, I go back to this point that that where I think, Sutton Sutton was very correct. The, the, the thing I he was correct that there was more going on that existed in the in the standard narrative, you know, that the essentially that the Bolsheviks seized power, they were evil. Everybody in the West uh, recognized this and they all unified to, again, sort of smother the uh, Soviet infant in his crib, as <laughs> would love to say, but somehow failed to do that. I see that's another thing that comes up. If everybody was, if all of these powerful countries were determined to do that, the question comes, how could you screw that up? I mean, how is it that you could, I mean, you know, the, the Bolsheviks did not have a firm grasp on power. They had all kinds of very powerful internal opposition. There was a whole civil war they were fighting and a civil war, which uh, Great Britain more than anyone else, but also France and the United States, to some degree, all, all financially and militarily backed. And yet that fails and that's where someone could ask, the, I think that's where Sutton sort of got the idea, did this fail because this was never really a genuine crusade to begin with? This was all sort of PR to cover the fact that, the, you know, that the only way that this could, that the the power of the Allies could fail in this is if, if there were interests involved that really wanted the Bolsheviks to, to remain in power. But I think that the real thing that you have to appreciate in this and in almost anything going on historically is that so much of it is chaos mm-hmm. so all, all, all of the, the all of the attempts by people to conspire that the, the purpose of conspiracies is to try to manage chaos which you can never entirely do which is why they will almost always fail for one reason or another
1: okay i'll bring a question in there yeah so in your work Most of the central characters seem to be acting from their own interpretation of benevolent reasons. Okay, So Jacob Schiff is trying to help out the downtrodden Jewish people in Tsarist Russia and trying to overthrow the Tsar for that reason or support overthrowing him. Charles Crane has this business interest in the American business class generally. So Russia's mismanaged and we need to get American markets in there rather than the Europeans. And then you have the Friends of Russia with like Mark Twain types in the United States and Emily Hothouse's yeah. brother in, in the UK, who are these real humanitarian types who want to build able to better world. So there's this confluence of different um, um, forces there. Or And I found it very interesting what you were saying about the, um, the reaction to the uh, aborted revolution attempt of 1905 and how I think it was in the American media that some people were calling for an invasion of Russia in the similar way to the Spanish American war they wanted a Russian American war now to finish the job and um, that that I really didn't know that before coming across in your book but just see if I'm characterizing the the contrast between your position and Anthony Sutton's correctly there that Sutton has this additional reason of this is a deliberate effort to kneecap the Russian economy the Russian government Russian growth in the economy for the first uh, decade of the 20th century is dramatic. It's growing at eight or ten percent a year. Uh, Russia vastly has this incredible amount of, of natural resources, a greater population than in the United States. And I did come across in like the um, the writings of Theodore for Theodore Roosevelt and such, um, this idea that the 20th century would be uh, a competition between the Anglo-Saxon and the Slav for domination of the world and domination of Chinese markets and so on. So, uh, and, and of course, let's say that Russia there hadn't been the communist revolution, and Russia had taken control of the Turkish Straits, expanded territory further into Poland, and had continued this uh, exponential economic growth that had moved to something of a kind of market economy, and maybe the the Tsar's power slowly declined over the 20th century, it would have been a real economic competitor to the United States, and you you would have had a much more genuinely multipolar world. So I look at something's claim, and I go, well, yeah, you can't ignore that. It does kind of make sense. But um, are you not going along with that level of cynicism that you don't think there was anyone in the u.s who had this long-term goal of or in the uk for that matter of actually like instigating a revolution and bringing in like the the crazy communist if you like to cut russia off at the knees
0: well i think that it was if you look at someone from the American standpoint if you look at charles crane and charles crane envisioned he wanted to see czarism gone from Russia. He wanted to see it become a kind of, of modern... But what he wanted to see it become is he wanted to see it become another version, a kind of Russianized version of America. All right, this was the... and You might argue this is one of those things that is a... I'm not sure it's peculiar to the sort of uh, view of much of the American elite, but that there is that... Um, Certainly, by the early 20th century, and people like Crane and elsewhere among the sort of American ruling class, for lack of a better term, uh, they thought of themselves as the cutting edge of of humanity at that point in time. And that in some way, the American Republic was the basic template that everything else was supposed to become. And therefore, if Russia was going to be democratized, it would be democratized is in a, in a kind of American uh, Republican form, and they, they were the kind of follow. They would follow our lead in this case. That we would have the kind of influence. I think it was this. You see this come up again. You know, after 1991, uh, and Yeltsin's Russia is flooded with American political and economic advisors. Who thought they were, you know, pretty much thought they were going to come in and turn the whole place into a giant McDonald's in six months through some sort of shock treatment economy, and that would work, and then it would just be sort of transformed, transform that attitudes and values would automatically go along with that. That usually doesn't work quite so easily, but I think there was um, there was a kind of messianic Americanism that that influenced people like Crane who felt that by getting rid of an atavistic regime like czarism that they would be being Russia into the into the mainstream and they would sort of fast track its Americanization but that also would give a great deal of of influence and clout. Russians would then sort of naturally look to Americans like Charles Crane as, as their leaders and the inspiration and looking for them for all kinds of advice and it's The one thing that that certainly is correct, and I do mention this, is that Russia in the early 20th century was, I'd argue, by the time of the First World War, poised for a kind of economic takeoff. It already was taking off. And it was also probably, uh, aside from uh, the British Empire, which controlled you know, <laughs> still a quarter of the world's land area. The Russians had a sixth. The Americans didn't have that much, but they have a very large sort of continental base. There were the sort of two... Um, I think there was the, the kind of recognition that we, the early beginning of 20th century that the British Empire's days as hegemon were not over, but you could see that down the road. Everyone could see that. I mean, if you basically looked at the economic statistics, you could see that Britain was steadily losing ground from the late 19th century against Germany, but more more than Germany, against the US. This is one of the things that once surprised me, is that if you actually look as to who, who British industry was losing markets to, well, they were losing markets to the Germans, but they were losing more markets to the Americans. They were really in the long run the more the more serious and and dangerous competitor. And then way out in sort of left field, you know, to bring in a baseball analogy, you've got Russia, which is still far behind. But the thing about Russia is that it's just got so much resources, potentially. It had all this gigantic potential. And that's one of the things that frustrated businessmen like crane is that they simply argued that czarism was too backward of a regime to exploit all of that potential there's all of this stuff you know there's there's all this tungsten in siberia we you get a hold of but these people are just too backward in order to build trains to get to there and so what they really need is you know sort of american advice and know-how and, and energy that we brought in russia under american guidance was what crane wanted and you can then so argue: What's the difference between guidance and control? Well, a matter of perspective. But I think that that what what Sutton was arguing is that there was a deliberate plan to sort of kneecap the Russian economy to hold them back by instituting chaos. As whereas I think it was more about the idea of trying to guide this potential rival into a position of dependency upon one or the other existing states. And and if you look around during the First World War, that's also essentially what the British and the Germans are trying to do. You know, part of the whole Treaty of Brest-Litovsk that had a whole addendum of economic items that essentially would have turned Russia into a kind of German economic colony, which was what they wanted. In other words, to get control of those, in other words, getting control of the resources through through, acqui- through business acquisition, by putting in a, a, a friendly dependent regime, uh, I think that's what was, they were being aimed for, uh, was, was to try to gain control in some degree. But you know, one of the British attempts at this in 1918 was this kind of half-baked plan of going in and buying up all the stocks in Russian banks, so-called the, the the banking scheme. And because, you know, the banks have been nationalized and you could, you know, find emigres that would sell you their shares uh, at a small amount. And, but the assumption was is that, you know, if at some point these, you know, these pesky Bolsheviks change their mind, you know, if they change their policies or if they're overthrown, if either of those happen, then look, we own all the bank stocks in the country and these banks also own much of the, uh, of, the, of the industry. Uh, and then you've got Americans like Hoover and others who are constantly trying to get concessions in, in mining. This was, you know, they get control of the resources. And then it began, it becomes this kind of factional battle as to how to do that. And someone could argue that the, the Bolsheviks were an obstacle, you know, because they're, they're communists and anti-capitalists and, and opposed to uh, development as we see it, they're an obstacle. But someone else, you know, William Boyce Thompson, they look at that and goes, oh, "No, these these are these people are essentially idealists, but they're also they have to be fairly practical men in some way." And so, what they simply need to do is is, is they'll, they'll they'll take our advice out of necessity, and we will sort of gain a position of dominance. Within that economy. But again, if you, if you go back to the war itself, the, the whole German policy really was towards trying to turn Russia into a post war economic colony. Uh, Britain essentially wanted the same thing. Uh, America envisioned a, a Russia that was, you know, would, would sit at America's lap and do what it was told.
1: Okay. And that's so in, when Anthony Sutton is talking about American troops supporting the Bolsheviks in. Siberia and Vladivostok, you are writing about the figure of uh, John F. Stevens and bringing 300 men into Russia to take over the railways, essentially, and the Bolsheviks initially having opposition to that, but then going along with it. So do you think the, are you proposing that the reason for this support that Sutton is identifying is because the Bolsheviks struck up a deal, essentially, uh, with American companies to take control of things like the railways, so they became what seemed like a good bet.
0: Well, I think the deal for the railways was done before the Bolsheviks come into oh, power. Okay. So the Bolsheviks inherit everything that the Kerensky, the provisional regime, had done before them, And, um... I mean, that, that, that's, you know, again, I, I keep going back to William Boyce Thompson, but, you know, as an example of what was later a pro-Bolshevik American businessman, well, when he shows up earlier, when he shows up during the provisional regime, he's all for Kerensky and the provisional government. And at one point, he gives a he gives million dollars of his own money, or I don't know, his stockholder's money, he gives a million dollars to the Kerensky government to combat enemy propaganda, which meant then combating Bolshevik propaganda, which at that point in august 1917 is considered to be german finance propaganda which you know it was so but then when kerensky falls and lenin's in charge uh thompson just kind of seamlessly changes his tune and and leaves the bulk of that money with them now to continue to generate revolutionary propaganda to be disseminated among german troops i mean what I see when I when I look at Thompson is that here's a guy who just wants to, you know, he, he wants to do business by any means possible. And he'll assume one oversort, sort, you know, so he'll he'll back Kerensky against Lenin. And, except when now when Kerensky is a dead letter and Lenin's in power. So we'll make a deal with Lenin. We'll, we'll negotiate a deal. And here's here's, a, I think, a, a point that's important about this. Is that understanding these are, after all, businessmen. And one of the things that a Thompson or a Crane or, you know, a a Jacob Schiff, anyone had learned in their years of doing business successfully is you don't have to like the people you do business with. It's absolutely unessential that they are friends of yours. In fact, it's probably better that they're not. Because that then doesn't let personal sentiment get in the way of business. You do business with someone because there is mutual advantage to it. That's the only actual reason. And therefore, you can make business deals with people that you personally despise. You can despise everything about them, their lifestyle, their habits, the way they eat, the way they come there. It doesn't matter. You can hate everything about them. But nevertheless, if it is financially advantageous to be in business with them, that you'll do that. So doing business with the Bolsheviks doesn't require that you have any sympathy with them. It doesn't mean that you don't fundamentally hate everything that they stand for. But the point is, as a Henry Ford might say, they want tractors and I make tractors and they will pay me for the tractors in gold. That is good business. How things work out politically down the end, you know, we'll see. Um and you know, and, and both sides could kind of justify their position. I mean, Lenin can justify his position by, you know, I, I think the the paraphrase statement is that you know, in the end, we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll sell the ropes to the capitalists that we'll then use to hang them with, okay? <laughs> because that's that's what it is they do. And on the other hand, was the idea was that well, this whole crazy communist thing can't possibly persist. They will either be overthrown and someone else replace them. All right. And you can bet that had Admiral Kolchak or one of the White generals seized control of Moscow and toppled the Bolsheviks, that William Boyce Thompson would have been right there seeing their praises and and offering the same deal that that he had before. So businessmen are used to dealing with people that you don't necessarily like, and in fact you may you may hate or mistrust to some degree, but where there is where there is profit to be made profit will be made. The other thing that I think influenced this is that a lot of American businessmen were, it wasn't like they had never heard of socialism before. All right, so there was an American Socialist Party which was you know, fairly influential among the American working class uh, around the time of the First World War uh, and which Wolfgang regime used the war as a means to, to substantially suppress. The Socialist Party never recovered from the wartime repression. Uh, that happened uh, after 1917. But businessmen had had dealt with this. They dealt with labor unions. They dealt Uh, with radical workers in these kinds of demands. And and what was the one thing that they had learned from this? Is, well, they could all be dealt with, right? Strikes could be broken, labor unions could be subverted, or they could be brought under, you know, you don't like the union that exists, pay to have another one created. Okay, um, but, but I think there was the sense that they could manage this type of thing. I mean, they're, they're, these are all this bunch of wild radicals. We've had wild radicals before. They're all impractical people. And once they you know they're in power, they'll 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 have to become practical
1: and that's the reason for just taking the example from your book the the u s. blocks this transfer of forty thousand soldiers uh, to the Far east to reinforce the Vladiv- Vladivostok whites, and they tell the Japanese to back off then because, They consider Trotsky is a man they can potentially work with. So he's a good horse to back at that point.
0: There is a, a, there's a lot about the whole Trotsky story, which is, I think may never be known. It probably isn't supposed to be, Uh, but there's a lot of there, there, which is going on. And it's, uh, it's one of those things that is not very palatable to a lot of people uh, I was surprised when I first tried to, you know, work on fleshing out what Trotsky was doing during his three months in America, you know, what was actually going on. Uh, and I knew a few people who were, um, you know, sort of very, sort of Trotsky scholars in some way. This was the whole, you know, and, but beyond that, they also worked, were uh, sort of Trotsky fanboys, <laughs> Can you that. They were Trotskyites, so they they imagined that they were. Um whatever particularly that means in, in, in a modern context. But yeah. they were completely uninterested in it. There, there was no real, I, I found the same thing in simply trying to look into his genealogy. It was as if none of these people had, had any real interest. I mean, it, it wasn't just that they didn't know anything about it, they didn't want to know anything about it. And they, they would argue that it was completely irrelevant as to whether or not Trotsky was related to the Zhitovski brothers, who are these very wealthy Russian bankers and capitalists, he has this whole set of capitalist uncles, and that you know doesn't make any difference. You know, uh, I mean, you know, what, what did it mean that when you know th- that the first message that Trotsky sends when he lands in Norway on his back on his way back to Russia finally from America that the first person he, he he informs of his imminent arrival are not any of his revolutionary colleagues. No, it's his uncle Abram Zhivatovsky, capitalist. Now, is that just because it was a family thing or why that particular person? But to, to people I would try to talk to this about, they would argue that, well, oh, that just doesn't mean anything. Okay, it's just it doesn't mean it doesn't mean because the only thing you have to do is you just have to look at what Trotsky writes and his political writings. And that's the only thing that's real. And their basic view was, is that if he didn't mention it, it's not important. And therefore, I should not try to draw attention to it. Whereas to me, you know, unhealthily curious about these things that I am, I want to know why, what the relationship was between he and his uncle, because clearly there was one. And again, from very different perspectives, um, uh, they nevertheless they and and this maybe this is also something else that I think that often gets underrated in historical historical narrative is is relationship family. Uh, It's sometimes treated as if that's kind of immaterial in some ways. I think it's never immaterial. Uh, Family either unites people or divides them in some way. And so finding out that so-and-so is someone's brother or their cousin or this there is a familiar relationship between them should never be ignored because that becomes very important in, in human affairs.
1: Okay, if I can ask about Trotsky then and his movement back into Russia, which seems to be facilitated by the British. So I'd like to put to you the way this is uh, being interpreted in some of the more alternative or conspiracy kind of based revisionisms of, of this history okay so one narrative that intrigued me okay and i, I find both um very compelling and utterly implausible is the, the idea that well britain throughout the 19th century the major geopolitical concern of russia uh, although like well obviously there's a khyber pass and and india but the naval concern is the turkish straits so Britain essentially went to war in the 1850s to prevent prevent Russia gaining control of the Turkish Straits. So there was nearly a war again in the 1880s, and then suddenly there's a reversal where, as far as I understand it, Russia's major war aim for the First World War, they thought they'd get out of it, was control of the Turkish states because when they closed, it really cut off Russian exports and they couldn't move their military ships through them. Um, and there is the, in there are certain more conspiratorial narratives that see it as just completely implausible that Britain would give up the Turkish Straits and allow Russia to become a great naval power. This is completely out of their interest. So the way Trotsky's movement is interpreted then is he's going back there to bring about this Bolshevik revolution precisely so at the right moment when the Americans are involved, Russia can withdraw from the war and then they won't get a seat at the table of negotiations and they won't win over the Turkish Straits. Now, I find that kind of highly compelling and utterly implausible at the same time because it's just too many moving pieces um, there to to possibly fit into place, but what I understand from from your work is that Trotsky, um, at the time he was in New York, was not talking about withdrawing Russia from the war, and therefore uh, would not have been seen as a threat that way. he could have been a very useful revolutionary figure in terms of keeping Russian Russia in the war.
0: Yes, I think that's well. You, know, you go back to something like um, you know the. British agreement with, with Russia, it, it, it's like all of the wartime treaties that are made. Okay? It's kind of this process of diplomatic seduction. So the, what, what, what's happened in 1914 is that uh, through a set of circumstances, Britain, France, and Russia are now all allied against Germany. Now, remember, a couple of decades before, Russia was the big enemy and Germany wasn't. So things can—you know, all of this is subject to change. So it simply means that now, because the Russians are allies, you have to make them happy and you have to give them, you, know, you have to, we have to agree how we're going to divide things up. So, yeah, promise them the Turkish Straits. Now, if you compare that to other wartime treaties, compare it like the... the uh, the, the entry of Italy in into the war, the, the secret treaty of London. It's secret because no one's supposed to know about it. And the Italians get promised various things around the Adriatic that, guess what? Even though the war is won, come peacemaking in 1919, the Italians immediately get miffed because the British and French who had promised these things before now argue that, uh, you know... I mean, that's probably not such a good idea, because now we have to accommodate Yugoslavia, which is this thing we've created. So you can't, you know, the deal we made before, well, that was then, this is now. So that's one of the things to understand about wartime diplomatic agreements. It's like they'll agree to whatever you want now, because this is now. And then later on, we'll see how this this works out. Uh, I, I also don't quite buy the idea that Trotsky went back just to try to, you know, Help screw up the whole Straits deal because you could have done that on your own. Uh, That would have been a uh, a what what it all depended on was who ended up in physical possession of the Straits at the war's end. That's what it depended upon.
1: Do you you do think it's quite plausible that Britain would have reneged on that? That they would have found a way to wiggle out of that, or not given them
0: any way they possibly could have. (laughs) Right. They would have taken physical possession of the Straits as they actually did, and and then it would have taken another war, probably get them out of it, and there would have been a whole, you know, and plus there's all the matter, you know, the other thing is that loan the Russians all kinds of money, okay, get them in debt. <laughs> so they can just trade that. Well, you know, the whole Straits thing, well, you owe us, you know, a lot of money, so maybe we'll you know, we can make a deal on that as well. No, it, it was never a deal that was made with any intention of ever actually following through on it, if there was any way you could you could possibly avoid it. So yeah, one of the things about Trotsky is that uh, he gave an interview to the New York Times shortly before um, before he returned in March of 1917, and in that he's very clear about saying is that he does not support the idea of Russia taking a, taking a separate piece. Now he's very much opposed to the war as a good, you know, as a good anti-war socialist, he is opposed to the war, which, of course, is a, a capitalist and imperialist war. But his argument, and not an insensible sensible one, is that Russia couldn't really have a separate peace; it has to be part of a generalized peace. So Russia's peace will come when uh, the, the the war ends. But it, having a separate peace would not be practical because it would leave Russia isolated and uh, and and rather vulnerable. In that position and that's why I mean to me this was in simply you know looking at the relationship the the fellow who's the head of British intelligence in New York in this period is a guy named Sir William Wiseman interesting guy in a lot of ways a banker by the way by profession so he knows his way around uh, Wall Street quite well but you know what what he was what he was looking for, in fact, he, he sets up with the knowledge of his superiors in London out of New York, right about the same time, beginning in the spring of, of 1917, as, you know, after the Tsar is overthrown and things are getting kind of weird in Russia, uh, his whole proposal, which he draws up, is a, is a plan to guide the storm. In other words, to kind of control the narrative which is taking place in Russia. And that included picking various revolutionary figures, uh, people from different ethnic groups, uh, like the, the Czechs, the Poles, the Lithuanians, and, and sending them back through America. So there didn't appear to be any particular British hand on this. So, you know coming back in, into, in, into Russia and then influencing the course of politics in the right direction, which meant keeping Russia in the war against Germany. And Trotsky was everything that Wiseman was looking for. And then you find these things, you know, that when 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 Trotsky goes, you know, he had to get a um, he had to get a passport, or he had, he actually had to get a kind of you know pass to go because the British controlled everybody leaving New York and headed towards Europe. You had to go through inspection in Halifax and elsewhere, and if they didn't want you going, you didn't go. So. See, that was the whole key. The, the key to Trotsky getting back to Russia wasn't an American passport he didn't need. He had a Russian passport, which he went and got, or at least a, uh, a kind of version of a passport, uh, which he got from the new provisional government, because, you know, they, their whole policy was ali, ali, oxen for Everybody could come back. All exiles were welcome to return. And so all he had to do was go to the Russian consulate in New York. And however, reluctantly, the former czarist official would stamp a piece of paper saying that he was a Russian citizen and could and could return to the country. But then he had to get to the pass from the British, and it goes to the British consulate at 44 Whitehall. He goes to the passport control office, which is managed by, completely overseen by Wiseman's intelligence, what would later become MI6, what what is SIS, Secret Intelligence Service, what was then called MI1C. Anyway, all these acronyms. But the point is, is that the whole passport control operation at the British consulate, is directly controlled by Wiseman's section. So there's no way they didn't know Trotsky came. And they, and, and Trotsky himself notes in his memoirs "Is the British couldn't have been more helpful. Okay, They had no problem. They knew who he was. His revolutionary background had been widely discussed in the American press. He wasn't shy about his public pronouncements. And they had no problem, or at least Wiseman had no problem, with him returning. And uh, eventually Trotsky does end up in this glitch when he, uh, you know, when the ship he's on, the Christiania Fjord, gets stopped in Halifax. He's taken off by British authorities because he's a suspected german agent. But this is, this is because of, it all has to do with the kind of division within in British intelligence in New York. And that has to do with the fact that Wiseman had a rival who was the fellow who represented British naval intelligence, who was Guy Gaunt. And, I don't want to go too far into this story, but it was essentially Gaunt trying to screw with Wiseman. We consider to be his public enemy. And then, but but eventually you know, Trotsky is out and, and he goes back. But this this was one of the, Wiseman was one of the first to see that Trotsky is a guy that could be useful. He does not support a separate piece. He doesn't really appear to be, you know, he'd probably take money from the Germans, but the point is he'll take money from anybody. Okay, he's perfectly, and from Trotsky's standpoint, look, he knows that he's not going to get back to Russia and without the British cooperating. It doesn't matter what the Americans do, the Americans don't control whether he's going to leave the country, but the British can, can essentially keep him bottled up in New York. So, you know, I don't think any particular promises were made, um, but help was offered. And it was accepted and a kind of tacit relationship, a kind of dialogue was approached. So to me, then, it's no mystery that when you you go ahead another year and now it's the spring of 1918 and Trotsky is the people's commissar for war and you have people like Lockhart and Riley going there, it all centers around Trotsky. That's the guy they're constantly trying to groom, pay attention to, because he's the one that fundamentally some people think ought to be the fellow in power and he's quite helpful so that kind of
1: brings us on to the lockhart plot really and this um character of Sidney riley you do you think that was a genuine effort at uh, an assassination of lenin then to bring someone like trotsky into power
0: what i suspect Okay, and I can only say I suspect because I'm not going to say I absolutely, you know. <laughs> Someone asked me the, not too long ago what it was I believed. And I said, well, I don't really believe anything. Okay, in the sense that I don't, uh, I, don't I don't think take things as some sort of operative example. I think that there are, everything exists is a range of possibilities, and some of those possibilities are more likely than others. And what everything suggests to me is what I mentioned before about there being more to the whole Trotsky saga that we know, Uh, and and, and I think it's very unpalatable to to his fans because it paints him as something of a egotistical mercenary. Egotistical. I don't think there could be any argument about how mercenary he was. Is well, uh, I think Trotsky was ambitious, and he would, and he was, uh, you know, I, I. experienced conspirator, if nothing else, and he'd make whatever deals he needed to make in order to accomplish his ends. And if his ends was to get back into Russia, he would make a deal to accomplish that. Uh, If his end was to try to expand his influence within the the Bolshevik hierarchy, he'd do what he wanted to do there. Um, So it was, I think what was going on in the summer of 1918. And this involves both the attempted assassination of Lenin at the end of August and in the so-called Lockhart plot that was going on at the same time. Is that what was going on was a primarily British, although not necessarily exclusively British effort to replace, to change the leadership in the Bolshevik hierarchy, which meant replacing Lenin with Trotsky. And that, again, because of the law of unintended consequences, did not work out (laughs) the way that it it was intended to. Or at least it doesn't seem to have worked out that way. And again, it makes, to me, it makes perfect sense as to why you would rather, you know, it it makes sense as to why you would assume if we could get rid of Lenin and put in a more amenable, uh, you know, maybe just more, Uh, vain and manipulable character like Trotsky that this, this would be an advantageous for our immediate ends. Remember, what people are generally thinking of is not what we need 10 years from now, what we need right now, all right? And what you needed right now in 1918 was you needed, above all, Russia back into the war against Germany. So, see, that, that's one of the things that would, assuming that that's correct, and the whole idea that the effort was to prevent the, because if, if that happened, we might assume, that had, uh, had somehow Trotsky or someone moved the Soviet regime back into the Allied camp before the, the armistice at the, at the end of the war, then Russia would have been better positioned to push through. What would have happened to those claims to the Straits, for instance? Uh, what, what, what would it pay payoff in that? So I, I don't think the Straits were a major consideration. I think the consideration of them was to try to return Russia to the fold in order to uh, bring the war to a successful conclusion, and that was and that was seen as a way to achieve it. It failed, um, and I, I'll tell you the, the the primary reason it failed for for years. I tried to make sense of the whole Lockhart thing. And there was all, and again, this, is, this was going by the standard narrative. And the standard narrative is that Riley is essentially trying to organize the overthrow of, of the Bolshevik regime per se. Now this is the whole thing that he's trying to, to topple the regime and that he is this working with at least the tacit support of the British government and also with other uh, allied uh, representatives, the French, and then above all that, an American, the head of American intelligence, a guy, the very unlikely name of Xenophon Calamatiano, And it was Kalamat, Kalamantiano, by the way, is the only one of the Allied representatives in Russia in this period who's actually arrested, tried, and convicted for his part in the 1918 conspiracies. Uh and, and spends uh the next three years in the Soviet prison and eventually gets out. And it was he was actually looking into Kalamantiano, but the first inklings that there might be something else to this were Kalamantiano was always adamant never wavered for a second that the guy who was responsible for his arrest, the fellow who was the whole worm in the bud of the so-called Lockhart plot, was Riley. Kalamantiano believed that Riley was working with the Bolsheviks, not against them, and that his whole purpose in this was to guide this so-called anti-Soviet plot onto the rocks, that that was his whole plan to begin with, now you know, uh, Calamantiano had to blame somebody for what happened to him, but he was, you know, he was quite clear. I think, and years you know, these, these things never, um, never made any particular sense. He, one of the most intriguing statements that Calamantiano made, which never explains any, any further than this, and at some point again, Calamantiano is a businessman. He's a representative for a large American manufacturing consortium. He previously represented uh, uh, farm machinery. um, You know, I think all chalmers at one point, uh, international harvester, he'd been a representative. So he too is a kind of Wall Street figure. And at some point, he goes, you know, I checked with people in New York. I asked people in New York about Riley, which is where Riley had been doing business for most of the First World War. Was in New York, and and they 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 told me that he was a professional. Now he never says who they are or exactly what they told him, but but it's interesting is that, um, Calamantiano checked. With mutual acquaintances in New York, probably in mostly in the business community, about Riley was told essentially that this guy is a professional; he knows what he's doing, uh, and 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 from that, Kalamanu can never figure out how a supposed professional could screw up that badly, unless what we think is the screw up was exactly what it was that he was trying to do. So that got me thinking. Eventually, it came down to the thing that, you know, You sometimes you're trying to build this story. And I, I kept trying to make the standard anti-Bolshevik Riley and Lockhart as this kind of unwilling sidekick thing work in this case. And eventually, the whole thing is that, well, let's try it another way. Let's, let's take the same set of events, but let's make Riley acting in Bolshevik interests the whole time. And then everything fell together. So am I in some way in that being seduced by my own? I mean, I don't necessarily want that to happen. I think it's interesting that it did. But to me, that's the version that makes the most sense, is that he's never what it well, he's never what it is that he appears to be. That's that's uh that kind of goes uh that's that's his part and parcel for this guy. But there's someone who I think. What I couldn't tell you at this point is whether I'm convinced, whether I think that I, I can tell you what I'm quite certain that Riley did is that he worked almost consistently for Soviet or some aspect of Soviet interests from 1918 on, that he was always essentially acting primarily in that role. And that, therefore, his generally much more visible role as a kind of fire-breathing anti-Bolshevik crusader backed by British intelligence was the fiction in this case. That's what it was that he was pretending to be, but that he was pretending to be that. Uh, and go to this fact. Uh, name me any kind of anti-Soviet conspiracy that Riley had anything to do with that succeeded. The answer is none of them do. Uh, in the same way that his whole friendship of Savinkov, who was at one point a somewhat formidable figure in the anti-Bolshevik camp, uh, but it, everything that Savinkov does with Riley just leads, you know, what 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 does Savinkov's relationship with Riley culminate in? It culminates in Savinkov going back to Moscow, giving himself up, and ratting everybody out, and he's encouraged to do that by Riley. That's, that's what the whole purpose of this was. The whole friendship was to guide him in that direction. So there you go.
1: Okay. Um, I have a, one further question on this particular period of history, if that's okay. and sure. So in part it's about, well, really, let's solve sort of this. Um, I don't really think, certainly in, in this part of the world, you hear much about the Polish-Soviet war running on to 1920. We have a very defined idea of the World War One being 1914 to 1918, and then everyone goes back to normal. Um, but it really seems it, it came close that the Soviets were going to overrun Poland and take the whole territory at that point, right up to the the German border, and then had ambitions beyond that for obviously the spread of communism. This is the point uh, where there's a red scare going on in the United States. There's lots of bombs going off. Uh, Some people say that's kind of overhyped, and it's a way of the capitalist class suppressing the labor movement. I'm sure that's true. Other people think it's a very serious thing of Soviet infiltration. But what kind of, do you know what kind of concern there was amongst the Allies uh, at that time, or the the old Allies of Britain, America, France, for this expansion of Russia um, through Poland during 1920?
0: Well, if you go back to the summer of 1920, um, particularly in the sort of critical months of July and August. Um, the new Polish army had basically taken advantage of the, of the Russian Civil War, all the infighting, to expand fairly far to the east. This is the type of thing where anybody can go back and sort of look at the maps. But, um, you know, at one point in early 1920, the Poles actually march into Western Ukraine and occupy Kiev. And and they do that by making a deal with the Ukrainian nationalist movement that a few months before they'd been bitter enemies of, <laughs> because there's this whole contest. I mean, the, the Poland that many Poles, including Pilsinski and others, envisioned, included large amounts of what the Ukrainians considered to be Ukraine. You know, it's, it's, it's an ongoing problem, isn't it? And but here again you have this, you you have the a, a perfect example of a convenient wartime alliance. All right, so the Ukrainians under Petyura had been completely beaten by the Bolsheviks. They're not big enough to put up any significant fight, but if they link themselves to the poles, maybe they can get something out of it. And the Poles will extract a gigantic pound of flesh in terms of territory for their help. but nevertheless, yeah, you know, it's either one side or the other. Um, and in the case of the poles, uh, they need the Ukrainians on their side, as opposed as as, as as opposed to being against them, as making some sort of, of deal with the Reds. So the Soviet uh, counteroffensive sort of begins after the poles take Kiev. Uh, they had pretty much won the civil war in the meantime, and by August, they're they're advancing on Warsaw. Uh, and so the climactic event in this is, of course, the, the Battle of Warsaw, which in modern Polish history is you know, a virtual religious event. You know, this is, and, it, and for good reason, because had Warsaw fallen, uh, probably the short-lived, by that time, Polish Second Republic would have fallen with it. So it, the, the, the threat of a Polish military collapse in the summer of 1920 was real. And what prevented that was that the Red Army, uh, the Soviet Red Army, overextended itself. It marched too fast, too far with insufficient forces. And so it reached the gates of of Warsaw exhausted. Uh, The Poles, you know, were pushed back on their sources of supply and were able to rebuild. They also, the, the biggest help to them, by the way, came from the French. The French sent in an entire military mission Sent weapons, tanks, etc. British support for the Poles who always seemed to be a little a little squishier. I mean, they were, but, but the French were, you know, were the, the mainstay in this case. Um, you know, and the Americans not to be left out. There was a whole Polish volunteer squadron uh, of of American flyers, kind of mercenaries, but also, you know, uh, more pro-Polish than anything else who were, who were present as well. And the people who were watching all of this more closely of course, were the Germans. And, you know, the First World War had not gotten Germany's way. And I think it's fair to say that there were a lot of people in the Reich who were quite unhappy with the Treaty of Versailles and everything that it had been entailed and quite unhappy with the creation of a, of a new Poland. Uh, and once again, it was one of the things that the Germans, you know, e- even the most monarchist, Monocle-wearing Prussian Junker, whatever else they thought of the Russians or the Bolsheviks, could agree with them that Poland needed to be wiped off the face of the earth, and that they would have been. I remember it was in a statement. I can't remember the guy's name, but it was again from a very, you know, a very traditional, very much a, a Junker officer or a former officer in the German army who argued that. You know, if and the question was, is it if Warsaw falls, is the Red Army going to stop when it reaches the German border? Well, the commander of the Red Army, Tukhachevsky, had already said no. He'd given an interview where, you know, maybe he was boasting a little bit. When he asked what the aim of his, what the goal of his campaign was, he goes, "I aim to water my horses on the Rhine." So, you know, once reactionary Poland is defeated. Once the bourgeois Polish state is crushed, then we will press on westward and reach unity. And, and Germany was the country that has, that it, even more than Russia, has the biggest communist party of the world. The Day is there. It's already tried to seize power once. It's just kind of waiting. Much of the German population is demoralized. And here again, you have this kind of right-wing officer who you might assume to be, the best example of an anti-communist who says that look you know if if, uh, if if the bolsheviks show up on our border i will change the imperial eagle on my cap for the red star and i'll do it gladly because it will give us the chance to march again against the british and french we'll be able to resume the war so if i have to make despite whatever i personally believe if in order to exact revenge <laughs> against our enemies uh, who you know have, have forced this this horrible treaty on us in order to overturn the stain of Versailles that yeah, I'll put on a red star and I'll join forces with the Soviets. And then we'll sort things out later as how that goes. So the, the the idea there was was quite real and it's it's one of those, I I, I think that the Battle of Warsaw was is one of the, the, the truly a very important turning point. It could have gone. Very differently. Uh, And had the Red Army showed up on the German border in the summer of 1920 with the defeated Poland behind it, you know, I don't know what would have happened, except that what happened from that point on would have been different than the history that we know now.
1: And substantially enough that it's not at all inconceivable that the First World War might have just resumed two years later, essentially, with a different alliance settle.
0: With a different, you know, a lot of it would have to do with um you know the the goal certainly from the soviet standpoint would be the establishment of a of a communist regime in germany and yet there were and, and whether or not that would bring in you know whether you could um whether the whether the german communists could successfully Put together a regime. Whether they could actually establish themselves in power, and then mobilize the country to resume the war in alliance with Soviet Russia, but now in the term of of a class war as opposed to a a war an an imperial war. I don't know. Would, would the German populace have rallied to that cause? Um, some would have, but would it have been enough? And that again is I don't know. You just have to try and see, but it was, it was a real, it, it certainly would have created, um, you know, would the French, for instance, and I think that would, would they have preemptively, you know, pushed across the Rhine and tried to occupy as much of Germany as they could before that happened. So that that was one, I think it was Foch who said something, well, you know, if it looks like the Germans are gonna go red, then what we need to do is just immediately seize Berlin as quickly as possible. You know, we shouldn't basically wait around for Tukhachevsky and his Cossacks to show up on the Rhine, uh, but we should preempt this by by essentially meeting them in Germany, or whatever would have led to a war between the you know the, the, a a, a semi communist Germany, the Red Army, uh, the British, and who I mean the, the French. But then there again, you get into this question: is that whether or not Britain would have joined France in that crusade? I don't know because see, they weren't getting along that well at that time. I mean, think of it this way. Consider all of the history. (laughs) I mean, let's just go back to Joan of Arc, right? which the French have never forgotten or forgiven. And France and Britain were allies against Germany because a particular set of circumstances put them together as allies. But that never entailed any deep love or trust between the two. I mean, the French after the war immediately began accusing the British of trying to undercut them in the Middle East, of subsidizing rebellions in Syria against them, in which they were quite correct. That's exactly what they were doing, because now, again, the situation had changed. That was then. This is now. So, um, you know, having broken up the Ottoman Empire, um, you know the British Empire basically wanted all the best pieces for itself, and they sort of reluctantly let the French have Syria, but then pretty much did everything they could to try to undercut that as much as possible, because at that point, French geopolitical interests in the Middle East were contrary to British geopolitical interests.
1: Okay, thank you very much for that. That's that's my entire list of questions. Is there anything else that you think is important to mention?
0: Oh, well, <laughs> there's probably all kinds of things that. Oh, are-
1: well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just want to say it's my entire list. I've got um, how's more, but I think it's good.
0: Segment. It's uh, well. I can I guess I'd go back, you know, to this thing that I've, I've probably harped on enough in this case about history being a narrative, and it's a narrative often shaped by the views or the prejudices or assumptions of the, of the people writing it. And, you know, I don't claim to be absolutely immune from that, although I will say that I've never really gone into any of my projects with some preconceived notion of what I wanted to find. Um, I I try to look at it, I, I try to let things simply reveal themselves, and I do believe that if you go... You know, again, it's like saying that if you want to know what it was that Wall Street, what people on Wall Street thought about the Bolsheviks, go read what they were saying in the newspapers at the time. Uh, these guys were often quite willing to shoot off their mouths with political opinions. And you will find people who will argue that Bolshevism is a great danger, it must be suppressed, and we can never deal with them. And you will find others who will argue that, no, no, this is actually kind of reasonable, it's actually idealism in political form, and, and we can do business with them. And then you probably got a larger third out there who are people who would never say much of anything, but would do business as long as it was, it was conceivably profitable for them. So it's... Um, I'd basically say that what you what people should always keep aware of is that the predominant element in history is always chaos. We always think we're trying to control what's going on. And it's, um, you know, it's it's a bit like, you know, humans have all these kind of conceits. It's a bit like, you know, climate, all right? I, mean, I want to get into the origins of what mm. climate is, but I say that, you know, Climate does change. It inevitably, whatever the reasons for it, it always changes. You know, used to be an ice age. Now there isn't an ice age. So there's micro and many things. But the the, the human conceit is that we can control this. You know, we'll, we'll do a series of things. We'll do this, that, or the other things. We'll stop using this. We'll start using that. And we will be able to control climate. We'll be able to control this whole kind of natural process. My personal argument is that it is a gigantic conceit because you don't know really what it is that you're trying to control. But, you know, good luck. Um, but they're always sort of approaching this idea that, that there has to be someone in control. And, and I think that often where conspiracy theorists go awry in their conspiracy theorizing isn't that theorizing that conspiracies exist. They most certainly do. But often, again, giving them too much credit for being too well organized and and having these things in in, in control. Um, You know, to me, the, 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 the spooky thing isn't that there are groups of people out there that think they could rule the world that they ever actually would, but that they think they could. I mean, just imagine the chaos and potential damage that anybody who thinks That they have the keys to ruling the world can do. I'll just give you one example, you know, the thousand-year Reich. How did that work out, right? Okay, the the grand Nazi conspiracy, and it's great, was was an utter fiasco. I mean, they act 12 years out of this, but look at all the damage that was done by people who were convinced that they had the keys to reality. And that's where the real danger in these types of things lie. But but history is a narrative, If you try to approach it, don't try to, once you set your mind that this is the narrative, then that's the narrative that you'll write. Instead, try as much as you can to restrain your interest and not force things and just let the story tell itself. And generally, if you collect enough information, it will. And then the main thing to guide by is, okay, what in all of this simply makes sense and usually that will be pretty apparent
1: Thank you very much Professor Spence Would you like to mention your um,
0: books the various ones that are available on Audible and elsewhere Uh, Well as we get into uh, shameless self-promotion so on, uh, on Amazon or you know, any place where books are available, um, my first book uh, that I mentioned, The Biography of Boris Sefinkov, is alas, a long, long, long out of print from a defunct academic press. Uh, so good luck finding any, any chances of that. But if you're interested, uh, I, I, I have been told that there are pirated versions available on the web. So you'll have to find those on your own And uh, because I never made a penny off of it. That's okay with me. But that again is uh, Boris Sevenkopf, Renegade on the left. Uh, my other uh, main books are uh, Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, which goes into him and lots of people around him. Um, uh, uh, Secret Agent 666, Aleister Crowley, uh, British Intelligence and the Occult, which is by far the work that I seem to be best known for. Who knew? And then uh, Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1925. And uh, many articles, uh, which can be found in publications from uh, Revolutionary Russia, that to that journal, to New Dawn, a more popular one. Uh, but I've written a whole variety of uh, of figures. So if you're interested in Basil Zaharov or uh, you know Ignatius Trebich Lincoln, I've, I've done some research into those fellows as well. Most recently, though, since I retired, I have been doing uh, video projects. So uh, I would point out that for a outfit called The Great Courses, also known as Wondrium, W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M, uh, Great Courses, Wondrium, I have three programs available. Uh, these are video episodes. Um, one is uh, The Real History of Secret Societies. Um the other is Crimes of the Century, which you know deals with things like the murder of Trotsky in Mexico, <laughs> among other uh, historical homicides, uh, and then most recently Secrets of the Occult, okay, which manages to mention Aleister Crowley in every single of the 24 episodes. So there we go, uh, and hopefully I'll be working on on some more things along that uh, those lines as well. But that's my stuff. So if anybody's interested. There's where you can find it, uh, Amazon or uh, Great Courses, Wondery.
1: Okay, well, I better I better head off and th- say thank you very much indeed for your time. Okay. I'd love to talk again sometime if you're up for that.
0: Oh, I certainly would. Certainly would, yeah. Great, okay.
1: yeah, fascinating. Okay, thank you very much. Right, well, you um, have a
0: great day on the Isle of Man, and hopefully I'll talk to you soon. Great, thank you. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye.